Turn your Bibles to the book of Proverbs in the 16th chapter. Proverbs 16, for a verse that we know well, is an axiom of our faith, gives us the proper worldview of all things. We're not going to go to John chapter 20 today, as we could have, as I intended to, because we need to spend one more Sunday about the death and burial of the Lord Jesus Christ before we go to John chapter 20 and see more historical facts listed there. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 4, the Lord hath made all things for himself. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. The Lord is the God Jehovah of the Bible. And he's made all things, natural things, irrational creatures, rational creatures for himself. He did not make them for them. He made them for himself. And this is so true and so absolute that the writer here, by inspiration, brings up an exception that you would like to make or might think of making that it doesn't extend to all because what about the wicked? Surely God didn't make the wicked for himself. Indeed, he made the wicked for himself. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil, when he punishes them for their evil. The day of judgment, that's the evil that is here. He doesn't make men sinners, but he makes men that sin, and he punishes them for their sins. Proverbs 16, 4. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 and read about the fulfillment in two quick passages of his creative purpose of making all things for himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. And I saw a great white throne... And him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil, or the day of trouble and judgment on them. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. You do not see much of anything like you will see it, is my point for today. You are really ignorant of the glory of God, except by faith. It won't be faith in that day. It will be stark terror for the wicked and the most graphic, real, true demonstration of God's glory and the glory of his son, Jesus Christ, and the glory of his cross. And today is not a day to frighten you beyond measure, but to comfort you if your names are written in the book of life. And you can know that your names are written in the book of life. Paul knew his friends' names were written in the book of life. Why can't we know? Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3, he lists a number of women and says, whose names are in the book of life. He knew it. We should know it. It's not that complicated. But I want to tell you that John 18 and 19 are a very limited 
review of the glory of God and the glory of Christ. And I hope that by the time I'm done, you may understand that. I don't think anyone here was more excited than I was about preaching John chapters 18 and 19. I hope that you know that and that you saw it. But it was a very obscure, very limited description of historical events. So-and-so went there, so-and-so went here, so-and-so said this, so-and-so did that. And so John 18 and 19 end. And there isn't one syllable in John 18 and 19 about salvation, reprobation, damnation, or judgment. It was just a list of historical facts for men to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God. But what is that Son of God going to do to the universe? When will the Son of God get His glory? You say, well, He got it on the cross. It was dark. Darkness isn't very glorious. There's going to be a light that He dwells in that no man can approach unto. That's better. And it's coming. And He's going to be revealed from heaven. Revealed. He hasn't been revealed yet. He was humbled when He was on earth. He's going to be revealed as the chosen one of God, the son of God, in flaming fire with mighty angels, taking vengeance on all them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, in his merciful providence, led us to John chapters 18 and 19. We read and saw, and I presented to you, how God abused his son by the Jews and the Romans to his eventual death and burial. Yet... In all that John wrote, there was no application or mention of the purpose or the value of what we read there. He had a crown of thorns on his head. What was that part of? Why did God do that to him? What does it mean? When will it get its full value? When will he be glorified for subjecting himself to that? It's all future. This is the coming glory of the cross because the cross is not seen as the glorious thing that it is except by our faith. But there won't be faith in that day. It will be the absolute final determining criterion by which men enter heaven or not. Then you will appreciate the cross. Then you'll appreciate the bruising that he underwent because he was bruised for your transgressions so that you could be in heaven. And others he was not bruised for so that they could spend eternity in hell. That's what we need to think about in the death and burial of Jesus Christ before we race on to John chapter 20 and read about his resurrection. His resurrection is only one step to something far greater. And that's him coming in judgment on this universe. A simple but sure fact is that angels and men, and even most Christians do not yet see the full glory of the cross. Why did God do this to his son? And when and how will he receive the full measure of glory for it? Think about these questions. You like philosophy? I'll give you a few philosophical considerations. Why did Jesus do this? And when and how will he receive the fullest reward and riches of glory for it? What is the real measure and value of the cross of Jesus Christ? And who and when will they learn it? Why did the infinitely happy God design such a drama? And when and what will be its fitting climax? Is there a finale to this drama of human existence? Oh, yes. And it's in Proverbs 16, 4 and Revelation chapter 20. Who, if any, beside God will benefit by the cross? And how and when will they and all others react to it? All future. All future. The questions that we can answer a little bit right now are by faith in the word of God. But in that day, it's going to be right in your face. And right in my face and right in the face of every rational creature in the universe. The glory of God, the glory of His Son, and the glory of His cross. We have, with John and Paul, gloried in Jesus' death by faith. 
But the questions I just gave you indicate a whole lot more than what we realize by faith. There is clearly much more to the cross than its historical facts recounted by four apostolic witnesses. There is a transaction between God and the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't see it. We barely see it. We're going to celebrate it at the Lord's Supper, but we're not going to see it then like we'll see it soon when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Time is divided into B.C. and A.D. by Jesus' earthly life. But the Bible tells us that time shall be no more and there's a bigger event. Then it's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that no one can imagine him. Except us a little bit by faith. Do you understand so far? That's one purpose. What does the cross really mean? When is the glory of God going to be fullest, the fullest display of it to the universe? When will Jesus Christ be publicly shown to be the blessed and only potentate? When will righteousness truly be exalted in the universe? When will sinners be judged? And when will God's love be manifested in its results in the salvation of sinners that might be less sinners than the sinners that are sent to hell? The next point I want to make that we'll answer today, only two. The first one is what is the cross and the glory of God and the glory of his son? The next one is what we learned in John 18 and 19 is that Jesus' human spirit went to heaven when he died and the human spirit of the thief went to heaven when he died. Where did the human spirit of the other thief go? The same place with the rich man in hell. So spirits, a spirit went to hell from the Mount Calvary. It's not a mount, from Calvary. A spirit went to hell Two spirits went to heaven. But in the great day of judgment, the spirit of each thief is going to come back and repossess his body, which was put in a grave. And with body and spirit, they'll stand trial before God, and they will hear a sentence from Almighty God through Jesus Christ, who is the seated judge of the universe. A sitting judge is a judge that has been appointed and put in office. Jesus is the sitting judge. And I'm not playing on the word that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, but you may certainly think about it. A sitting judge is a term of our American jurisprudence of a judge that is in office and has the authority to judge, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. It didn't matter where Paul was preaching or where Peter was preaching. They said that Jesus Christ was the one ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead. We know from Scripture that the sentencing of men to hell or rewarding of men to heaven is future. But why are they already in hell and why are they already in heaven? That doesn't make sense to me. It's a question I get asked often. And so I want to answer it today. That's my second point. I want to answer why the elect have been remanded to heaven and the wicked have been remanded to hell and are going to come forth from those two places, repossess their bodies, and then stand trial and sentencing. You might ask me very quickly, do you mean Cain's been in hell for 6,000 years, and he's going to have to come forth to find out that he's going to hell? Absolutely. It happens every single day in our own American court system, which is set up following the heavenly one. Happens every single day. Shouldn't surprise anyone one bit. And I'll use the Manson family as my example for that in a trial that took place between 1969 and 1971, one of the most well-remembered trials in the history of America. The Book of Life has not yet been opened as the formal and official ruling of salvation or damnation. It's coming. Therefore, for these two reasons and everything I've just said, it would be imprudently foolish for me to rush into John chapter 20. We need to find out when the cross truly becomes valuable. You say, I already think it's valuable. You'll think it's more valuable in that day, and in that day you will not remember the value that you put on it today. 
Because the value then is going to elicit the greatest admiration, adoration, and praise of the God of heaven for his choice to put you in Christ Jesus before the world began and write your names in the book of life, for which book of life and the names in it, Jesus Christ shed his blood. You'll love the cross in that day. And the wicked will realize that they put the wrong man on the cross in that day. And even the men that didn't lay their physical hands on the Lord Jesus Christ will be guilty for the same kinds of sins and listed right along with them and cast into hell for what they did against the Lord Jesus Christ. God will be glorified in that day. Righteousness will be exalted in that day. The Savior will be lifted up and the cross that he died on will be the determining factor of eternal destinies of rational creatures. We can't go to John 20 yet. We'll go to John 20 next Sunday. I want you to appreciate the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's more than thinking about how many pounds it weighed and how many yards it was from Pilate's Judgment Hall to Mount Calvary. I want you to think about the real consequences of the cross, the glory of the cross, and the glory that shall be revealed. Let's think for a few minutes about the bruising and grief of the cross. John chapters 18 and 19 gave us an inspired record from his arrest in the first few verses of John 18 to his burial in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb at the end of chapter 19. Jesus in Gethsemane had begged his father to remove the cup of suffering from him. Peter tried to remove the cup of suffering from him. Jesus told Peter to sheath his sword. Shall I not drink the cup my father's given me? Right. Most only go so far with Jesus as to get him in a manger, get him on a crucifix, or get him to some door where he knocks like a lady. There's another Jesus in the Bible. Because those three pictures, still maintained, are another Jesus in the way that they maintain those three pictures. The Lord God of heaven punished, pounded, bruised, put his son to grief. In John chapters 18 and 19, I have spent time before explaining to you that there was physical torment of Jesus Christ's body, psychological torment of his spirit and emotions and mind, spiritual torment of his spirit and soul being fought by the devil and his angels, and a divine punishment of God leaving him on that cross and forsaking him in the fellowship love and manifestation that he had enjoyed all his life with Almighty God, his Father. The four kinds of suffering I've explained to you before, that's not for today. <clears throat> but why did God do that? Why did God do that to his son? That is for today. What will God get out of doing that to his son? That is for today. What will the son get out of doing that Submitting to that from his father. That is what today's for. <clears throat> what difference does it really make in your life? <laughs> that is what today's for. Because the difference is huge. It pleased God to punish his son the ways that I've just briefly mentioned. But why did it please him? Why did it please God? What will God get from it? The Lord hath made all things for himself. That is Proverbs 16, 4. But in Revelation 4, 11, the Lord hath created all things for his pleasure. How does God get pleasure out of pounding his son? Because a day is coming in the which he will be shown to be absolutely impeccably righteous. In that he will send men to hell that after a trial of bringing all facts and evidence about them to bear, they will be sent to hell and the universe will know he is just. Then sinners equal to or worse than those men will be ushered into heaven to inherit the universe and the, the universe will know that he is impeccably just because a lamb slain will be standing there, his own son that he pounded in his place instead of us. We are moving toward this date fast. Amen. What did God get out of Jesus dying on the cross at that time and in that manner that's recorded in John 18 and 19? 
Why did God highly exalt Jesus and give him a glorious name for doing it? We don't see it clearly yet. Of course we have Bible doctrine that we believe by faith. But it's going to be far more visible than that. It's going to be very public. It's going to be very official. It's going to be very formal. And it's going to be universal. Every rational creature is going to know the righteousness of God, the glory of God, and the, the mere sovereign will that he has that determines the destinies of men and angels. And they're going to know the Lord Jesus Christ and his obedient submission to his Father and the glorious salvation that he wrought by allowing God, the, his Father, to pound him on the cross of Calvary. It's all coming. The difference between men is incredible. The difference in angels is incredible. God made a difference in the angels different than the difference in men. But God made a difference in both creatures. And those angels desire to look into the things that were done for us. The scheme of redemption is not remedial for man. The scheme of redemption or the plan of redemption, the design of it, is revelatory for God himself. God didn't create and get in trouble when we sinned and then get creative with finding a solution. God had the solution before he created. And it was all for his glory. It's a drama. The whole thing is a drama. Didn't you hear the young brother read about the curtain that he draws across the stage? It's a drama, and there's a finale, and we're not to the finale yet. So you're only in the process of seeing things play out, but the finale is going to be incredible for the glory of God, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the glory of the cross. You will not just call it the book of life. You will call it in the dearest emotional terms, the book of life of the Lamb slain. Because without the lamb being slain, the book of life and your name being in it means nothing. It's the lamb slain that put it into force. God doesn't need you and he's not affected by you. So why is God doing this? If it's not remedial, if it's not to save men from suffering in hell, why is he doing it? We started with the text. Proverbs 16.4 The Lord hath made all things for himself. It's for the glory of God he's done this. And he has not yet shown his glory like he's going to show it in that day. You haven't seen it yet. You barely know it yet. It's all by faith and resting on the word of God, but you'll see it plainly in that day. We believe a legal payment to God's justice was made by Jesus Christ's substitutionary suffering and death. We have, by God's blessing, divided the Bible, rightly divided the Bible, into five phases. There's God's planning phase that took place in eternity, and there's the death of Jesus Christ 4,000 years after creation, in which he paid a legal price to God. But a legal price to God is what is called an imminent, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, act of God's will. It is all within the will and purpose of God when that legal transaction took place. It's not that real to us except by faith in God's word. It's real to God. And God is going to reveal what's real to him in a phase that's yet coming. Because of the legal price paid, the Holy Spirit regenerated us. Because of the legal price paid, the gospel came and told us about that payment price of the Son of God's death, but the final phase of salvation is when it is going to be gloriously displayed to the whole universe. And it is coming. If you die before it comes, you will be remanded to heaven if you're one of God's elect. That is a term of American jurisprudence of being put in a place of detention or holding until trial. And if you're one of God's, if you're a reprobate, you'll be remanded to hell to await trial from hell, exactly as we do it in America. Do you understand that? Exactly as we do it in America. Death is your arrest. What happens between arrest and trial? You're remanded. Or you're given freedom. Thank, thank you, Lord, for not putting us in purgatory in between. Thank you, Lord, for remanding us to heaven if we're God's elect. You say, how can I know I'm God's elect? It's easy. Just make sure you're in the book of life. 
You say, how do I know if I'm in the book of life? It's not hard. You can make your calling election sure. It's an eight-step process. Don't, do you like things like that? I want an eight-step goal. Eight-step method to know I'm in the book of life. Well, it's in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11. It's no more complicated than that. Paul knew his friends were in the book of life. Jesus knew the 70 were in the book of life. They were servants of the Lord. That legal payment, we thank the Lord for it. God saw the travail of Jesus' soul and he was satisfied. That took place in heaven. That took place in the mind of God. God seeing his son, God choosing what punishments he would pour out on him according to prophecy, according to his own will. He put his soul to grief. It pleased him to bruise him. He was satisfied. But what does that mean? I love the doctrine of satisfaction, but I want to help you love it a little bit more today. And that is to think about the day when God's satisfaction will show up. Right. And it will show up huge. Amen. Because he'll be satisfied with what his son did in the cross. And because of that satisfaction, he will sentence you and me, if we're God's elect in the book of life, to eternity in heaven. Amen. You say, how do I know if I'm God's elect in the book of life? I already told you. It's easy. It's not hard. It's not complicated, and there is no fine line. But is this all God gets from what he did to his son? Legal satisfaction of his justice? No. The Lord hath made all things for himself. And that doesn't mean God made all things for imminent, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. Those are internal acts of God's mind and will. Imminent act. God didn't do all this just for him to have something going on inside. He is going to have it going on outside, and he is going to get praise from every single rational creature. Every knee shall bow to his son. Every mouth shall confess his son is Lord. It's coming. We're on the winning side. In the case of God versus the church of Greenville, God wins, we win. Yes. In the case of God versus Cain, God wins, Cain loses. In the case of God versus Abel, God wins, Abel wins. Are you with me this morning? I want you to appreciate John 18 and 19. Blindfolding the Son of God, slapping Him in the face. That was God slapping Him in the face. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him so that you wouldn't be slapped in the face because He's going to slap the rest of them in their face for eternity. That's what's coming for the wicked. We believe a legal transaction took place so that God could be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? Then you've been justified. What are you worried about? Well, I just don't know if my belief's enough. You're believing in the wrong thing. I didn't say if you believed in your believing. I asked if you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop believing in your believing. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, but what about Matthew 7? There's going to be all these people that are going to say, Lord, Lord. Yes. Have you ever read Matthew 7 other than that terrifying verse to you? Those are false prophets. Those are false teachers. All, they bring up three ministerial works. None of them ever did anything that Christians do. None of that is ever brought up. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? That is a false teacher. Can you understand that? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Those are the false teachers of the context that are not in the book of life by any stretch of the imagination. They are wicked men. Paul knew that the ladies that uh, served with him in the kingdom of God were in the book of life. And it shouldn't be hard. And I don't want it to be hard. That's not why I'm... I can't forget that. Paul did say, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. 
And as my brother prayed, the apostle Paul labored, whether present or absent, that he might be accepted of him. So we want to labor to make our calling and election sure and that God will accept us in that day by the evidence we have. Because the Bible tells us over and over in many different ways we can lay up and store a good foundation against the time to come. Do you re- you, what I'm going to tell you about today, you can, lay up and, you can lay up a good foundation against that time. That's what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't want that day to render you like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden where you go and run and hide the trees of the garden. The Lord wants it to move you to obedience and service, praise, worship, love, and devotion to Him. That's what we want to give him. If the Bible is true, I've made a choice by faith that it is, then the day of judgment is the most transcendent day in the universe. It ain't creation. It isn't incarnation. It isn't crucifixion. It isn't resurrection. It isn't ascension. All those days move toward this day It's the day of judgment. The creation of angels and men and the incarnation and crucifixion of God's Son leads to a grand finale. Until then, you can't see anything. Turn to Ecclesiastes with me. Ecclesiastes. You say you haven't used many verses so far. I have a table in this outline with 84 verses. Almost all of them from the New Testament. I didn't want to trouble you with those from the Old Testament. But I don't need to list them all because you should know these things. I'm just re-preaching it for your appreciation of John 18 and 19. You say, when did you preach it before? It was one sermon, 2002, called The Judgment Seat of Christ. Ecclesiastes 9. Watch this verse with me as I read it. Ecclesiastes 9.1. For all this, Solomon's Book of Philosophy... For all this I considered in my heart, even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth, And to him that sacrificeth not, as is the good, so is the sinner. And he that sweareth, as he that feareth an oath. This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Solomon is teaching here, without me getting off track for just one minute, It's been preached before. Solomon is preaching here life from a natural standpoint. And life from a natural standpoint in this world does not show who the wicked are and who the righteous are. But it's coming. Oh, the day is coming. This is simply from this life. It's an evil in that there is no distinction made between the righteous and the wicked. There can be a good man and a bad man. There can be a clean man and an unclean man. There can be a man that fears oaths, and there can be a man that is just impulsive in making oaths. And the difference between those sins and righteousness is very great, but no one can tell the difference because all events come alike to them. They get the flu, and they recover. They get a cough in November, and it goes away. They live and they die, and guess what their life expectancy is? Around 73. You say, which ones? I didn't need to. Both sides. But John 18 and 19 will come to bear. That's what I'm trying. It will come to bear. Just hasn't come to bear yet. It has in the purpose of God. Do you want me to spell it again for you so you can find it in Google when you go home? It's I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, imminent acts of God in his own mind. We've been justified before the world began. We could back up to the eternal phase of salvation. We've been justified and adopted in the predestinating purpose of God before he ever created. But what good does that do us? It does us every bit of good, but it just hasn't been revealed yet. And it's going to be revealed. The Bible declares transcendent things that God will do, which he has not yet done. Your Ecclesiastes, look back just a little ways to Psalm 50 
And one of the songs we sang this morning was taken from Psalm 50. I'll show you where the song came from as soon as you find Psalm 50. Psalm 50 in verse 1 is where the song came from. The mighty God, the Lord. Do you remember when you sang that a few minutes ago? There it is. The mighty God, even the Lord. Psalm 50 in verse 1. But I want verse 21. It's describing a wicked man in verse 17. You heard truth, you rejected it. Verse 18, you agreed with adulterers and thieves that both sins were okay. Verse 19, you opened your mouth and said bad things and lied to other people. Verse 20, you were against your own family and you slandered your own mother's son. That, those are wicked sins in verses 17 through 20. Verse 21, these things hast thou done and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself, but I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. Right. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Right. This is the Bible. This is the Bible I chose to preach when I was a teenager by the grace of God. I believe every word of this. I believe every syllable of this. And there are so many men in America today that say, that say, that say, God couldn't be like that. They've got to be like I am. God couldn't be that harsh. God couldn't be that hard. That's because they don't think there's any right and wrong in any absolute sense of the word, so they've modified God to their own likings. Look at what this says. You thought that I was like you because I kept silence. But do you know, in the silence, listen very carefully. That's assuming there's no typewriter in heaven. Listen very carefully. While he was silent, he recorded every single sin against him and his law. Every single sin against conscience. Every single sin against creation. Every single sin against providence. Every single sin against revelation. Because the books are going to be opened and men are going to be judged by their works. And Cain is not going to get away with a single secret thing. And if I have enough time today, I'll show you the verses in both Testaments that say there is no secret thing that will not be fully exposed and opened in the trial for every single rational creature when they stand before God. But we will be judged righteous by the interposition of the Lord Jesus Christ who took every one of those sins as we nailed him to the cross, as we drove thorns into his head, as we pierced his side. He will have paid our sin debt for us. But look at that verse. That's why I'm trying to say to you, God is silent. God has kept things out of our sight. Anybody seen Cain in hell? Has anybody taken a field trip to hell yet to see if Cain's there and what he feels like? See how hot it is? Did you take a thermometer when you went? Oh, nobody's been to hell? Don't tell me about going to YouTube and checking out those people that say they've been there and came back. Anybody been to heaven? Paul went to heaven, but it wasn't lawful for him to tell you what he saw or heard. Why? Because he wants us to live by faith right now, and he's going to explode all this information. You want to talk about an information explosion? The information explosion has not happened yet. The information explosion is going to happen when Jesus Christ returns. I hope you're all with me. I have been turned upside down this week. I wrote you on Tuesday that I was euphoric and physically affected by my excitement about John 20. Then a sister in here wrote me an email and asked me a question that I get asked many times. Why do they have to come back from hell? Why do they have to come back from heaven? Why does that happen? Okay, Lord, they don't see John 18 and 19 in its fullness yet. I don't see it in its fullness what do you want me to do about it? And since then, I've been messed. That was, that was Tuesday. Since then, Tuesday or Wednesday, I've been messed up in wanting to make this as clear as I possibly can. Do you realize with me, and I say this in all respect, and I showed more zeal about John 18 and 19 than you. I say that kindly. Do you realize that John 18 and 19 is nothing but a listing of historical events? Right. He went there. She went there. She said this. He said this. They made a crown out of thorns. They put a purple robe on him. 
That, that's all. It didn't say anything about judgment. It didn't say anything about salvation. It didn't say anything about glory. It didn't say anything about righteousness. It's all coming. You were given enough historical information to believe that the historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, is God's son. But you have not seen that son glorified yet. There was enough done at the cross that the centurion could say, truly, this man was the son of God. But wait till you see him next. John got a little picture of him in chapter 1 and chapter 19, and he couldn't believe his eyes. He fell at his feet as dead. And he reached forth his hand because he is approachable. And he is our loving friend, brother, bishop, shepherd of our souls, and said, fear not. I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of hell and of death. Oh, now that's a judge. Can you see him twirling on his finger? I have the keys of hell and of death. The sentencing... Okay, Romans 9.22, very quickly. Romans 9.22, Lord, don't let me get behind. You know what happens when I get behind. They get a tithe. Don't let me get behind. Heavenly Father, let me glorify thee and glorify thy son and glorify thy son's cross. Let them all see it plainly and be moved by it. Let them know what's coming in the future. We thank you for the word of God that gives us many, many scriptures telling us what will come in the future. And we thank you for every one of those verses. Romans chapter 9, verse 22. Let's get verse 21. Hath not the potter power over the clay? Does the potter, God, have power over the clay, humanity? Yes. Of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Yes. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Has that happened yet? No, it hasn't happened yet. Does God want to show his wrath? Yes. Does God want to show his power? Yes. On what vessels? Vessels of wrath. They're going to receive his wrath. How, what will be the effect of his wrath on them? Destruction. Eternal torment. In the lake of fire. 9.22 hasn't happened yet, but it's something God wants to show. When's he going to show it? Show and tell in a day that's coming. Every rational creature will have his sins identified and the interposition of Jesus Christ will be magnified in that day. Verse 23, and that he might make known. I want you to look at the words show, which is the sixth word of verse 22, and I want you to look at the word known, which is the sixth word of verse 23. God wants to show some things, and God wants you to know some things. You, don't, you haven't seen them yet, and you don't know them yet like you're going to know them. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared into glory. You haven't seen God's glory for you yet. You just believe it by faith. I hath not seen, the Bible tells us, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. If you love him, you're his elect. If you're his elect, you're in the book of life. And if you're in the book of life, he's going to show you the riches of his glory. But you haven't seen them yet. It's coming. You've been, you know, if you die, whoever dies next, you know, you'll be, if you're one of God's elect, you'll be remanded to heaven. And so you'll be given your freedom until trial. Freedom in heaven. It's just, it's just beautiful. This, this day that's coming is what everything was, was created for. It's the finale of the drama of God's redemptive plan. It's just absolutely mind-blowing beautiful. Amen. Which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate. All time is moving toward a show to God's glory. Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven, visually, powerfully, unlike ever before. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. A day of wrath is coming that is referred to over and over again. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. The philosophy of Solomon ends. You know verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. What's the last verse? 
For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Some men's sins go beforehand and others follow after. Do you understand that? Okay. The sentencing and rewarding of sinners. I've already mentioned the five phases of salvation. I'm not going to mention them again. There's a day coming that transcends all other days in its effect on the universe and the amount of information that will be revealed. The wicked will be formally and officially declared guilty and sent to eternal fire. The elect will be formally and officially declared justified and adopted for heaven. Judgment Day will fully display God's attributes from love to vengeance. Jesus Christ's achievements according to God's eternal counsel and purpose and the discriminatory and final effect of his cross for eternal destinies of angels and men. Unbelievable. The gospel just tells us about it. And let me tell you, when Paul and Peter got asked questions, I'd like, hey, Felix, Paul, I'd like you to come by and talk to me about the faith that you have in Christ. What did he tell them? Righteousness, temperance, judgment to come. Acts 17, Paul on Mars Hill. We'd like to hear about this. You're a setter forth of strange gods that we haven't heard about before. He said, you've got the God problem. I saw all the superstition that you have. Let me tell you something. God raised Jesus Christ from the dead just to reassure you that he's sending him to be the judge. You've heard about Jesus of Nazareth coming out of Palestine, that the Romans killed him. God raised him from the dead because he's your judge. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the elementary facts of our faith and gospel include eternal judgment. I'm just telling you about it. I want you to appreciate John 18 and 19 in the fullest way that we should. (coughs) Jesus and God his Father have yet many rewards to give out, which they will in that great day. I've got 20 verses for that particular aspect of what's coming in the future. What is the present state of the righteous and wicked? What is the present state of the righteous and wicked? Why must they be judged again? I mean, if Cain died, his spirit went to God, and God said, down. Mm. Push the down button. And Cain went to hell. Why does he got to come back from hell? Because the day I'm telling you about. Cain deserves to have a trial. God's got books on Cain. God has books on you. God has books on me. And thankfully, God has one more book. You do not want to see the pages of my book, and I don't want to see the pages of yours. I just want to see one page that has my name on it. This is what John 18 and 19 is all about. What's the present state of the righteous and wicked? When a person dies, the body is put in the ground to wait resurrection. It doesn't matter whether they're elect, saved, or not saved. Jesus Christ is coming back to raise every single body Every single body, righteous and wicked, the spirit goes to God and is either remanded to heaven or remanded to hell. The rich man died and lifted up his eyes in hell. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Jesus and the saved thief met later that day in paradise, which is called the third heaven, by comparing Luke chapter 16, Luke 23, and 2 Corinthians chapter 12. There's three heavens. There's the heavens that the birds fly in. There's the heavens that the the planets and stars are in. And there's the third heaven beyond that. And that's where God is. Their bodies were buried until resurrection. Jesus, three days. His body was only buried three days. The thief's body is still sleeping. The other thief's body was also buried, but his spirit went to hell like the rich man. All men, no matter how long dead, will come back for formal and official sentencing. Do you mean that Cain has been in hell for near 6,000 years but will yet be judged? Absolutely and yes. His 6,000 years in hell, you're worried about it, aren't you? I'm going to tell you how fair and just our God is. His 6,000 years in hell before judgment is, not, is unjust to you, isn't it? But it's not. Because he gets time served. The Lord's going to give him time served against eternity. Right. 
Now are you happy? You're worried about that, aren't you? His 6,000 years served, God's going to give him time served. It'll come off his eternity bill. What, what God does is like what our nation does, but since God came before our nation, what our nation does is like what God does. It's at, it is so beautiful. The wicked come back to be convinced by their judge of all the ungodliness, of all their ungodly deeds that the ungodly have committed. Jude 1, 14 and 15, it was preached by the seventh from Adam. They have to come back up because there's going to be a man that is going to confront them about all their ungodly deeds and all their ungodly sayings that the ungodly have done in an ungodly way. And that's two verses from Jude telling us something that Genesis didn't tell us because Moses wasn't inspired to write that for us. Compare our legal system and how it treats criminals in a very similar manner. Charles Manson, five foot two inch demented lunatic, addicted to hallucinogenic drugs. In the days of the hippies, he was the perfect hippie. When he got released from prison in uh, 68, he had been in prison at that time. He was 34 years old. He had been in prison over half of his life in various institutions. He had enough of a charismatic spirit that little hippie girls followed him until he made the Manson family. And there were about a hundred of them. The girls would do anything for him. They would kill with their, bare, with their fingers. They would kill with knives. They would have sex with him whenever he wanted to or anyone that he told them to have sex with. It was the Charles Manson family. You can read about it until you're sick of reading about it. But I want you to think about his trial, and it's why I've brought him up. It's one of the most famous trials in American history. He was arrested in November of 1969 for several murders that summer. The Sharon Tate murders and so forth. He was held in L.A. jails for 17 months. He was remanded to jail for 17 months awaiting his trial and eventual sentencing. Is that fair that he was in prison for 17 months when he hadn't been tried yet? Thank you. Was it fair for him to be in prison when he hadn't been sentenced yet? Okay. Detectives, investigators, lawyers for both prosecution and defense gathered facts. From the fall of 69 until the middle of 70. The trial began in June 1970 when enough evidence for his guilt had been gathered. All the facts, all the testimonies were brought forth for the jury, which took one week to make their decision. God doesn't have a jury. He is judge and jury, and he doesn't take a week. He already knows, and he's given you hints in the Bible so that you can know ahead of time. By making your calling and election sure and laying up and store a good foundation against the time to come. The jury in 1971 rejected all the defense efforts, all defendants, Charles Manson and the girls with him were guilty of all charges, seven counts of first-degree murder, and they were to be gassed in California gas chambers. He was sentenced in April of 1971 for seven counts of first-degree murder and to be gassed. In 1972, California and the Supreme Court of the United States in separate actions ruled against all death penalties for a while, including Manson, just because he fell into the large number of those that should have been executed. He was in prison the rest of his life, 46 and a half years, which ended in November of 2017, one year ago. What happened at trial? Follow with me. What happened at the trial of Charles Manson? As planned, defense attorneys tried every way to save him. Will men make every effort to save themselves? Lord, Lord! What did Cain do in Genesis 4? My punishment is too great to bear. Am I my brother's keeper? Oh, it's coming. I love knowing that there is an, an infinitely wise judge that's going to be seated on his judgment seat at his bar of justice 
and he will not be led astray by anyone, and he is going to rule in absolutely perfect, impeccable righteousness. What happened at trial with Charles Manson? As planned, defense attorneys tried every way to save him. What happened at verdict? He was publicly declared guilty of first-degree murder. All of America celebrated. All of America celebrated. More on that in a moment. You are magnificent. We just have an obscure effort at following what the Bible teaches. Right. What happened at sentencing? Little or nothing. He was in jail. He was sent back to jail. Is that okay? Does that bother you? that sound familiar? Does it sound like Cain? Is that what we do? Does anyone think our system is unfair? He was in jail. He went back to jail. He was called out to stay in trial, sent back. Perfect. Are you, is there one with me? How long had he been there? 17 months for this particular offense. How long's Cain been there? Near 6,000 years. What else happened at sentencing? He was formally and officially condemned to death. This is sentencing. The verdict was already, he was publicly declared guilty of first-degree murder by seven counts. What resulted? What resulted from this trial? The world knew that U.S. law was good and would justly punish Manson. And the nation celebrated. What else resulted? The law was honored by 12 rejections of parole over the last 46 years and his prison death. The law was vindicated. What else resulted? Crime does not pay. Justice was served. All victims were defended. That's going to happen again in a day that's coming very soon for every rational creature, every angel and every man. Compare God's legal system and its process with Cain. Cain died 6,000 years ago for crimes and was taken from earth and sent to hell. Cain's death was comparable to Manson's arrest. No further threat to await his trial. Cain has been in hell or the lake of fire since his death, 6,000 years, awaiting his trial. Cain's incarceration is comparable to Manson's holding in jail or detention center of L.A. County. Cain has been suffering the loss of all freedom like Manson did for his 17 months. Judgment Day will be Cain's hearing, his trial, his defense efforts, prosecution efforts, and sentencing. There will be nothing hid in that day. Every secret sin of Cain will be fully exposed. Almighty God, by his seated judge Jesus Christ, will condemn Cain to eternal hell. Almighty God, by his seated judge Jesus Christ, will reject all pleas of his defense. They will rule by the books, recorded facts of his crimes, and they will rule in perfect divine justice. He will be sent back to hell or the lake of fire where he had been detained until trial. What happens at trial for Cain? Clear, certain evidence and facts are presented for his guilt. What happens at verdict? Cain is declared guilty of Abel's murder and much more. What happens at sentencing? Little or nothing. He was in hell. He'll return to hell, just like our system. What else happens at sentencing? He is formally, officially, universally judged to the second death. What else happens at sentencing? In the case of God versus Cain, God wins, Cain loses. What results? The universe will know God's holiness, justness, wrath, and power. Amen. Things hid thus far. What results? The universe will know Cain's guilt for crimes against perfect, merciful, beneficial laws. What results? God is exalted, glorified, and honored for perfect, righteous vengeance. What results? God is right, sin does not pay, justice is served, victims are defended. What results? God demonstrates and exhibits his perfections and total sovereignty. What results? Smoke of their torment is heaven's incense of his righteous judgment. 
What results? God's glory is exalted like never before. Yea, even the wicked in the day of evil. This is John 18 and 19 applied. This is a case study of John 18 and 19. I am not going to John 20 until we get this thing settled. Why does Cain have to come back? For the whole universe to know how Cain is judged and that him going to hell is perfectly just. But we've got another brother to take care of after our break. Abel will come out to judgment as well. And he's going to have many of the same sins that Cain had. But Abel's going to go to a very different destination. By the book of life. Of the lamb slain. John 18 and 19 were to tell you how, when, and by whom the lamb was slain. May the Lord pull it all together in your minds by the Holy Spirit to see it clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.